This is God's word. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For forty years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. The word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? God of mercy and grace, as we come to you from all kinds of different places, all kinds of different experiences of this past week, we look now in hopes that you have something to say to us or for us, something that connects with our lives, whether that be coming from um, a place of, um, of, of initial attempted belief, yet it's full of doubt and skepticism and uncertainty or whether we've just maybe entered in, after a long period of faith, entered into a kind of phase that seems never-ending, a phase where we doubt you, where we wonder about your, your realness in our life and in this world, or whether we come with great pain or sorrow. And on the flip side, some of us come with thankfulness. We just look at our life and we say, we're in such a different place than we were a year ago or ten years ago, and we're giving you thanks we see your hand in our lives. So many different places we come from, and yet we sit here all in the same boat in one important way, that before you, we're more of a mess than we care to admit. We don't want people to know how, how out of control our lives often are, and yet you see our mess, you see our brokenness, and you move towards us in love and grace, sometimes before we even turn to you. So through that kind of grace that loves us dearly, Will you speak to us in a way that our lives might be changed? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. During the first year of City Life Church, so this would be about three years ago, would have been right in the heart of it, we were meeting at a different location, and, um, you know, I just had this, I was so stressed out by the idea of starting a church and by the certainty in my mind that, you know, I had all these issues going on. Like I wasn't going to measure up to someone who could really get a church off the ground and all this kind of stuff and all this pressure. Um, I remember the first time I had a couple weeks off, about, about 11 or 12 months into it. So I go away, you know, and I'm just going to be gone, feeling like, oh my goodness, what's going to happen when I'm not there? So many of the things, like I only really knew how to set up this and set up that. And, um, and I remember I, you know, waking up in Michigan on the morning you know, and there's the time, change, time difference and everything, but I knew, like, minute by minute, where things were at with the service. 
you know, and was setting up. And sure enough, like 45 minutes before the service, I get a, I get like a phone call, you know, where's the cord for whatever, you know. And it's just like I couldn't relax and I'm on vacation finally away from all of this. So that was year one, but as things have progressed and people started to, to be more involved and, and I got more realistic about, you know, it's not all about me, <laughs> this whole thing. And I, I could just relax when I would go away on vacation to where now um, I'm almost giddy about it when I'm on vacation and I'm away. And I think this is more of the standard minister approach to vacation. I mean, we just got to be honest that there's, for ministers, Sunday morning, I mean, if, if you're not at church, it's just kind of, this interesting kind of deep satisfaction as you, you know, you're maybe playing go fish with your five-year-old in your pajamas and you're thinking, there's a whole bunch of people doing the confession of sin right now (laughs) across the country in Sacramento. Or, you know, you're walking on a beach or, you know, swimming in the beach and you're thinking, people are listening to a sermon right now and I'm walking on the beach, you know, and on and on this kind of feeling. Um, And I think, you know, there's just a, there is, I'm just going to be honest, there's a deep satisfaction now with, that, with this job that's so concentrated on just this one window of time once a week for me. But there is a flip side, there's, there's, and I'm not lying when I say this, there's honestly a flip side to that, that, okay, so that Sunday that I'm gone, I'm on vacation, you know, it moves on into Sunday evening and into Monday and Tuesday, and there, I'm not lying when I say this, that there is a sense of, huh, something's kind of missed something. Just, just that kind of... And I'm not talking... I know, you know, you think maybe that you're a preacher guy, so you're in religion mode, and you're talking about, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to feel the guilt, you know. I, feel, I didn't go to church. I didn't check off that box. Or I'm starting to worry, you know, when I come back, people are going to say, hey, we didn't see you, you know, that worrying about what people think about me. Or, or, um, or just worried about maybe on a divine level, worried about God's judgment, you know, for, you know, kind of backsliding, to put it in religious terms, right? Like, I didn't show up. It's none of that. None of those things. Just something missing. Something important missing by not showing up in worship. I don't know if you notice, every week we have, um, at the beginning of the worship service, we do it very clearly here. Most most Christians around the world do this in some way, shape, or form. We do it, it even has a title in the worship guide and on the screen, call. Call to worship. Each week we do that. Very significant, very important part of our worship service. There's a sense in which worship and the gathering of Christians invites us, calls out to us, beckons us to come, and we have to respond. We have to decide what we're going to do. And what I think is it's kind of like surprise, surprise in our modern day, in our world, and even right here at City Life, there are people who, hearing that kind of that general call to worship from Scripture and from God and from the church, hearing that call, there are people that actually build into their weekly routine and their schedule. I mean, week in and week out, it is the norm to come to gather with other Christians, other people pursuing this faith, and worship, and I think in some in some points, and it seems like the ob- it seems obvious. And some you're kind of going, duh. I mean, what's the point? But in some cases, you've got to just stop and say, in one sense, how strange that is, and how unusual, and yet how interesting. You want to kind of peel away the layers and say, what have these people heard in this call, and why have they decided to respond with a life of regular worship? Why? 
What's going on? Um, well, it's something big, whatever it is. And I think that one of the authors I read this week, his name is James K.A. Smith. He talked about it as just simply worship is like being, tapping into what it means to be truly human. So catch some of these, what I think are some amazing descriptions that he gives. He's talking about the different parts of the worship service, and he talks about the call to worship. He says, and we've hardly even done anything yet. We've merely showed up and heard the call to worship, but already we've glimpsed what is implicit in this action. Embedded in our gathering in response to this call is an implicit understanding of what is required for human flourishing. To be human is to be called. Um, But called to what? Gathered for what? The congregation gathers in response to a call to worship, which is the fundamental vocation of being human. Have you ever heard worship talked about that way? What an astounding thing to say. He goes on, he says, um, in a strange and terrifying sense, oh no, that's not where I wanted to start. He says this, gathering as an answer to the call to worship is a displacement of any human self-confidence or presumption. Implicit in the very act of gathering is an understanding that human flourishing requires a dynamic relationship with the creator of humanity. In short, worship is at the heart of being human. That is a very big thing to say. That puts worship in a whole different context. And I I think a lot of us, what what we'll tend to think about it is just maybe tacking on something to life or this is the religious portion of life. He's saying the reason that people build their schedules around coming to something like this is because it's about being human. It's about flourishing as a human. Um, for me, it connects with a book that I've been reading recently called The Worst Hard Times. Has anybody read this book by Timothy Egan? I think is that his name? Yeah, Timothy Egan. Um, so it's all about the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression, but especially what happened in, um, in, in the parts of the Great Plains where these dust storms just began to come, even, um, even to the extent where the majority of the days out of the year, more than half the days out of a year, there would be these incredibly huge, dusty, dirty uh, storms full of blowing topsoil coming over just hundreds and hundreds of miles. And then only like, you know, there's a break for a day and a half or so, and then another one blows in. So what happened was, is that there was this great call to settle the Great Plains, and even kind of the government was behind it. A lot of shifty real estate people were behind it, and, and the railroads were behind it, and they're all getting all these people to, to come on, go out to the wild, wild west and get your, you know, your stake in, in, uh, in settling a part of America, the last frontier. But what they were doing, what, the, what, the, what everyone was doing was plowing up this grassland, these perennial grasses that were holding the soil in place. And so the idea was, like, you know, everyone gets a farm and everyone just kind of earns their little piece of the pie and you get, we got these wells that are getting water from underground even though there's only 20 inches of average rainfall a year here. We're just we're going to pump this water from underground and we're going to water the fields. And it, and it worked out really well and there was this boom of these crops. I mean, this just people were just getting rich and then all of a sudden comes this drought. And what nobody had really thought of and predicted was that those roots of those perennial grasses, even in the drought years, we're still there, still alive, just kind of dormant, 
but they were holding down the soil. <laughs> they were literally keeping it from blowing away because every year the winds would come and the soil would stay. And suddenly now there was nothing to hold the soil down. It took a long time before anybody figured it out. But this guy who was, who was a chief player in figuring out and doing something about it, his name was Hugh Bennett. He actually ended up working for the, the, the administration the, of, um, was it um, Roosevelt? Um, and, and just you know, beginning to look at the broad spectrum of what needed to be done to correct this problem. And basically, so think about it this way. There's this huge catastrophic problem. Um, and farmers are trying to do all these little things maybe and maybe just plant a little garden here and maybe I'll, I'll, I'll still get my livelihood through this garden that I'm planting. And then a storm comes and, and pummels the garden and, and just all these, in every little effort that a farmer would try to go about doing to keep life going would just get destroyed by these storms. There was a bigger problem at work, and Hugh Bennett knew this. And he would go in and try to convince farmers to start treating the land like it was originally meant to be treated. This is how it was designed. He was the one who was trying to call us all, or call the farmers and everybody back to how the land was designed to be treated. And this is what this book says about it, about what he did. Um, as the dusters picked up in ferocity, Hugh Bennett was one of the first in Washington to try to convince people it was not just another natural disaster, an epic drought. It seemed like something caused by man, a product of hubris and ignorance on a grand scale. Maybe some of it could be reversed. But to do so, people would have to think anew about how they use the land. It could not be done in a piecemeal fashion. From the start, Bennett thought the answer was getting people to treat the prairie soil on its own terms. A great plow-up in reverse. Conserve what farmland could be saved through new methods of contour plowing, crop rotation, and soil conservation districts. For other lands, the ground would be, could be seeded, and in time, the southern plains would have its grasslands back. Now, why do I go into that great... I feel like that's an incredibly interesting kind of diversion... But what I want to say is that what Hugh Bennett was doing, coming into these people's lives and saying, how about you just think about this whole thing differently, about how the land was designed to be, that's what worship is doing regularly in our life. It's coming to you and saying, um, amidst all the ways in which in your life you've been plowing up the topsoil, and what do you know, but in the way that you know, you behave financially in the way you behave sexually in the way you behave relationally with family, with friends, the way you behave vocationally, the way you make life decisions. In all of these ways, all of us can look at our lives and say, you know what, yep, plowed up a bunch of topsoil there and the wind's coming. Here comes the wind and what do you know, there's a big storm and we might try to plant a garden over here and do something kind of good that we hope flourishes with maybe a new job over here, a new relationship over here. Worship says, for, asks you to look at your life the way Hugh Bennett came in and, and say, maybe there's a bigger picture issue going on. Maybe I need to come in and every week kind of reframe, who am I? What's going on? What is life all about? And stop the general practice of plowing up topsoil and treating life in a way that just we weren't designed to live. It's a, huge, it's, a, it's a huge thing that worship is doing. And so what we have is, is one author named um, John Whitfleet, who I read this week. He put it this way. What we have each week, he says, worship begins with a grand processional. 
as people leave their homes, apartments, dorm rooms, nursing home rooms, and hospital beds to walk, wheel, or drive to a gathering place. On one level, this is altogether an ordinary event. After all, basketball games, concerts, and lectures all feature such gathering. He says, but in this processional, people are gathering to address God. To engage with the one who created the cosmos. In this processional, people come because they are prompted by the Holy Spirit. Perhaps the Holy Spirit will use an invitation of a friend or a neighbor, perhaps a newspaper ad, perhaps even a sense of obligation or duty to draw the congregation together. And in this processional, people from all sorts of backgrounds come to gather around the person of Jesus Christ. In many contexts, the congregation gathers from around pulpit, font, and table, furniture that symbolizes how Christ comes to us. Congregating is an act of spirit-forged coming together around the person of Christ for the purpose of addressing God. That's that's what's happening. It's a great processional. And some of you, I know you might hear that and you just might think, man, if only you knew. I mean, the, the, the friends that I'm with week in and week out, I mean, sometimes I feel like I'm the only person on this processional. And I come in here, but then I go back out to a world of people who just, if they even knew that I took it this seriously, they'd think I was so crazy. Or even if they, if they knew that I was beginning to dabble in the idea of Christian faith. I mean, and that fe- you know, that's an interesting place that God might have you. And I, on the one sense, I want to just affirm and validate that that's an incredibly important um, thing that God might be doing in your life and in the, in, in the place that he has you. Um, but it also kind of highlights a tendency. It's not necessarily the best tendency among Christians, which is to, because the world can sometimes feel that way, because a lot of you have, like most of your friends don't, and most of your family or most of your coworkers don't join up in this grand processional, there can be this feeling like, man, I just want to huddle up. I just want to enclave with those who believe these same things so I just don't feel so weird all the time. And yet, even as we come here, you know now, if you've been coming here with any regularity, that, that we, don't, we don't affirm the enclave, the huddle-up mentality. Because we acknowledge, as this psalm acknowledges, that this call goes out to everyone. It's not just for those who believe. It's, it's in a sense, if you're a Christian, you come together, and um, you're making a confession of faith by joining up in the procession, and coming and saying, you're, you're, you're confessing faith in a sense just by being here. But we're doing that in such a way that it's also at the very same time an announcement. An announcement that's being made to the world, to those of you who you bring along here, to those who, who you're going to be telling about city life to, um, during this week. It's an announcement that says there is a grand transition that worship is asking me to make every week, and I need to be retold every single week. I might even need it more than that. Because I consistently need to be shown... She's alright. Just trying to get up the stairs. A lot of people think about worship. Um, one time 
in a group of ministers, actually, I said, I said something to this effect, that, that I believe that the most relevant place for my friends who might be open spiritually but not really ready to step into a church, that I think the most relevant place for them to be is at worship on Sunday morning. And I remember kind of this puzzled look on some of the faces of these these ministers that I was talking to. And I know that feeling because in, in so many churches there's, that I've even been in, there's a huddle-up mentality. There's a, a mentality of, you know, when we're here, we just settle for a lot of really weird things <laughs> that Christian people just do. And we just have a high weirdness tolerance. <laughs> and we're just going you know, to embrace that, um, that kind of subcultural baggage. And, and I kind of, you know, I kind of think some of that's true. Some of that is just, you know, there. But there's also a part of it is constantly being aware of normal people being open up to the open to the Christian faith, and those are the people that that are here every week. Um, all right, so let me transition because I, I wanted to say some of these big picture things about worship, and then just blow by really quick. We're really on the home stretch here. Just blow through some some three things that we are called to do through this psalm. Three things that are involved in taking up this call. Okay, so and the, the three things are the three things that Psalm 95 says: come and and it kind of fills in the blank. Come and sing, verse one. Come and come with thanksgiving, number two. And on verse in verse six, come, let us bow down. So it's those three things. And this is just just real quick. What are those verbs or those words saying? Uh, sing, thank, bow. What is that saying about what it means to answer the call to worship? and to um, build this into your life in, in a sense to steal again from this book about the, the Dust Bowl. It said, uh, once the government got behind Hugh Bennett's work, the book says, the government bought 107,000 acres and designated as the first patch in the rebuilding of the great American grassland. And then this, it would take time, 10, 20, maybe 15 years before a, new, a big new swath of turf was in place again. So, so maybe, you know, you got to think about the long haul and maybe, you know, you're going to commit yourself to worship and answering the call, but, but maybe not see the fruit right away. Maybe not see the buildup of the years, of the weeks of reorienting your life to um, the story of God. But what are you doing? What are you doing when you answer the call? Singing, thanking, bowing. Singing. Real quickly. Isn't singing a little bit of an odd thing to sing together with a group of people? I mean, who, where, where does that happen anymore? Baseball games? Um, concerts? I have um, one of the fat family, one side of the family that I go to gatherings at maybe once a year or every other year. If there's a piano there, um, and, you know, there might be also alcohol involved, I'm just going <laughs> to say. Um, if the, the combination is right, then where the, the party ends up is that my aunt, who can play piano by ear in two different keys, kind of like the white key and the black key. You know, like it's got the one with the sharps and one with the, with the straight. So she can play piano by ear and she's got this old American folk songbook and we all stand around and sing from it. And part of it is just, you know, it's just weird. You stand around, you look at each other. Are we really singing together? I mean, who does this? When does this happen? Um, and yet it's just so much fun when, when we do it together as a family. And there's a sense in which it is. We need to stop and think about the strangeness of singing, think about the oddness of it, and, and realize why we keep doing it and why it's been there since the beginning. Why last week in Holy Week we read scriptures about how Jesus did this, this Lord's Supper thing and then, 
And then it says, just kind of as if it was the most normal thing in the world. And then they sung a hymn. <laughs> and just kind of, you know, he just he's telling him he's going to die. And, and then they sung a hymn, you know. Um, in the Psalms, saying over and over, sing. And in the New Testament, oh, when you get together, sing. Why do we keep doing it when it's so weird? Well, there's something about singing when it says, I will, um, I lost the page there. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. When you're singing, you're saying, I'm going to say this thing, but it's of such heightened importance in life. It's such a grand thing that I'm saying. It's such a beautiful, important thing that I'm going to say it and I'm going to add some beauty and some emotion and a part of my imagination is going to get tugged on while this happens. It's a very intense thing. And for that reason, for what I just described about that, is why... um, for some of you, th- that moment of when a song is beginning and the, the words pop up on the screen, for some of you, that is the most fragile moment spiritually in the worship service. I mean, am I going to join this crowd and add my voice and try to add some music, um, hopefully on key, hopefully in tune, right? But am I going to harmonize and, and put my voice with these other voices? Am I going to do this? And so sometimes at City Life Church, it's very... It's very normal. You have, you know, someone just belting out out of joy, singing these lyrics. Maybe they're familiar, or maybe just the tune is, is just beloved tune. You have someone belting out, and someone just, just one row over with a, almost a furrowed brow of skepticism. You know, just kind of, you're looking at these words going, yeah, I don't know, do I believe that? And maybe, maybe skeptically looking in your line of sight for levels of sincerity around you. Do people really mean this? Is this for real? Could I ever picture myself joining in this chorus? And I think that is the most beautiful picture of what the church is meant to do as we sing. Um, and, and part of that is, notice the plural, let us sing. There's a communal nature to it. Because one week, you're going to be belting it out, out of joy, out of circumstance, out of a deep sense of faith. And someone next to you can't sing because of the pain, the doubt, going on in their life right then. And you know what's happening is you are singing for them. And they need that. Because, you know, 10 weeks later or 12 months later, it's going to be reversed. And they're going to be singing for you. So it's communal. It's a sing. Add some beauty and emotion to some words. It's intense. Let's move on to thank. Why is the word, why is it all about thanksgiving? That word comes up all the time in, in talk of worship and in these songs in the psalm, thanksgiving. Let me just read, just to kind of capture this, let me just read something I think is just a beautiful, um, if I can find it here, just a beautiful thing that helps us understand how thanksgiving works. So this guy named Simon Tugwell is writing this book called um, Prayer. And he quotes an ancient medieval writer, so this is him quoting, and then Simon Tugwell is going to quote about the quote. This is the ancient quote. You can tell by how, it, how it's written. So doeth God Almighty to his lovers in contemplation as a taverner, right, like bar owner, as a taverner that hath good wine to sell to good drinkers that will drink well of his wine and largely spend. You just follow this. This is a beautiful analogy. When he, when he knoweth what they be when he seeth them in the street, privily he goeth and whispereth them in the ear and saith to them that he hath a claret and that all fine for their mouth. 
He taketh them to house and giveth them a taste. I love this picture. This is God with you. Giveth them a taste. Soon, when they have tasted thereof, and they think the drink good and greatly to their pleasure, then they drink day and night. And the more they drink, the more they want. Such liking they have of that drink that of none other wine they think, but only for to drink their fill and to have of this drink all their will. And so they spend what they have, and then they spend or pledge their coat or hood and all that they may have to drink with liking as long as they desire. Thus it fareth sometime by God's lovers that from the time that they have tasted the sweetness of God, such liking they found therein as, a dr- as drunken men they did spend what they had and gave themselves to fasting and keeping vigil and to doing other penance. And then Simon Tugwell goes on to kind of interpret and say, that is the context for all our discipline, and including that worship. All our discipline, our ascetic efforts, our self-sacrifice. God himself, like a shrewd taverner, uh, has come to us first to seduce us from the narrow path of worldly duty to know the sweetness of his love. I just love that picture. I had to read almost all of it to just communicate the beauty of that. And that is exactly why the word thankfulness comes up all the time in worship. Because we're not coming thinking, maybe if I come regularly this month, I'll get a piece of God's action. I'll get some peace. I'll get some love. I'll get some grace. Maybe if I'm really regular, maybe if I climb up this religious mountain, I'll finally know something about God and feel what it's like to know God. God pursues you and pursues you and finds you. I love the picture of him coming out into the streets, you know, like a tavern owner with the best wine and and, and figuring out how he can kind of bring you back home and give you a taste. That's exactly how it works. And you might be here a year, two years, five years regularly. Meanwhile, you're, you're walking around, even running, and, and your throat is getting dry as you run around the outside of the tavern and, and, and forget where the door is, in a sense, until God comes out and grabs you in. It might take a while, but just keep, keep looking for those doors. Keep realizing as, you, as you're over here in life that, you know what, you're really just drinking out of a out of bad, contaminated well water off a spigot on the back of the tavern. <laughs> you know, when inside is the best drink that there is. There's a, there's a very, you know, it's kind of funny to think about that, but you, that's, that's really where we find ourselves. What, I'm here again? Oh, this isn't where I want to be. And God comes out. Just sh- there's a part of just showing up at worship and giving God the chance to come out and invite you in, give you a taste. The sweetness of God's love. Um, and you know what? Uh, God moves towards us first, and that's the story of Jesus coming to us. Um, in this psalm, you know, this is one of those psalms where you just kind of, uh, as the reading ended, and then many of us, you know, you kind of know the rhythm of saying the word of the Lord, thanks be to God, and you know, you kind of ends like with this this almost warning threat kind of language, and then we're all going, thanks be to God. <laughs> what? <laughs> I'll be cut off from God for forty years? What? You know <laughs> what? Uh, what is it? Is this a threat? What's going on? God's anger? Thanks be to God, you know, we say. And, and part of it's just realizing that what, what has happened in this psalm is that, once again, it has brought up the issue of God's salvation, how he has saved first, and how the Israelites turned out not to come back with very much thankfulness. Because he, he brought them from slavery and freed them, and they were saying, give us slavery again, take us back, at least there was food there. 
And on the cross, when Jesus comes to us, we talk about being saved uh, from, from slavery to sin through what Jesus has done. And there's a whole sense in which the answer of like, am I supposed to be terrified of being cut off for, from God? Um, as this psalm talks about at the end, for 40 years I was angry with that generation. There's a sen- real sense in which in Jesus, the final answer, the final sense of this psalm completely changes. Because in Christ, there's no fear of separation from God. There's no fear that it's going to ride on our thankfulness. And even as unthankful as we might find ourselves, you show up again and you say, I'll just grab hold of the fact that in Christ, God looks at me as a child of God. So that's how this psalm kind of switches, if you know the bigger story behind it. Um, and just one quick last thing. You know, this last word, bow, what an inter- another interesting word in verse 6. Um, there's a way, a real sense in which um, Christian worship is unique because in your life there are many things that, um, that call you. Christian worship calls you. There's other things competing for that call. And very few of them are willing to be honest enough to tell you amidst that call, I'm asking you to bow to this. You know, will you bow to you know, your job, your career, your money, uh, relationships, just you name it. Um, the thing, the hobbies that you're into, the thing you're structuring your life with. Most things are not willing to say up front, you know, this is about bowing to me, <laughs> to me. And yet that's exactly in many parts of our life what we're doing. Is that, you know, if we're really honest about it, it's, we're not large and in charge. We're actually bowing to something that's a, you know, a competitor for, for God and for his goodness. And so worship, in a sense, is just very honest. Christian worship is very honest and says this is about this humble act of bowing, of being subject before something that you've seen as important and life-defining. So Walter Brueggemann writes um, about this. Very interesting. He writes about how worship is like, um, the things that we say in worship are, are like an anti-idolatry campaign. Let me find this right here. Uh, where'd it go? There it is. Um, Every hymn of praise is a little anti-idolatry campaign. The affirmation of Yahweh, you know, the the name of God in the Old Testament, always contains a polemic against someone else. It may be that you will sing such innocuous-sounding phrases as glory to God in the highest or praise God from whom all blessings flow. Even those familiar phrases are polemical, however, and stake out new territory for God, now about to be aroused to new caring. When we sing, praise God from whom all blessings flow, we are also saying, down with the gods from whom no blessings flow. What are you bowing to? Worship calls you to bow and is honest that that's what this is about. But it's to the God from whom all blessings flow. Um, you know, so the whole point of this is that this very beginning of worship, every week when we hear a call to worship and we respond, there's something very huge happening. Something very huge. Um, and I just want to summarize with uh, kind of what happened with the whole Hugh Bennett um, Dust Bowl thing. It's a very dramatic thing that happened. Uh, Black Sunday, the, great, the granddaddy of all dusters came in on Black Sunday. It was in April of um, 1935, I think April 14. So Hugh Bennett is at the same time, he's in Washington, D.C., arguing for this whole new soil conservation legislation and they're debating and they don't know maybe it's just a small issue maybe we don't got to put all these millions towards uh, saving the grasslands so uh, Black Sunday had changed everything 
Um, listen to this. On Friday, April 19, five days after Black Sunday, Bennett walked into room 333 of the Senate office building. He began with charts, the maps, the stories of what soil conservation could do, and the report on Black Sunday five days earlier. The senators listened, expressions of boredom on the faces of some. An aide whispered into uh, Big Hugh's ear, was his name? Big Hugh, it's coming. You know, the storm was actually going to come and cover Washington. So this prompted a broad diversion, more on Pliny and Jefferson, jokes about his own farm and how it was hard to maintain. Keep it up, the aide told Bennett again. It'll be here within an hour. Bennett told how he learned about terracing in an early age, about how the old ground on his daddy's place in North Carolina was held in place by a simple method that most country farmers learned when they were young. He, and, and he did mention, yes again, that an inch of topsoil can be blown away in an hour, but it takes a thousand years to restore it. Think about that question. Then a senator who had been gazing out the window interrupted Bennett. It's getting dark outside. Senators went to the window early afternoon in mid-April, and it was getting dark. The sun over the Senate office building vanished. The air took on a copper hue as light filtered through the flurry of dust. For the second time in two years, soil from the southern plains fell on the Capitol. This time it seemed to take its cue from Hugh Bennett. The Weather Bureau said it had originated in no man's land. This gentleman is what I'm talking about, said Bennett. There goes Oklahoma. That's exactly, that kind of drama is exactly what's happening every Sunday when you come to worship. This, it's not just a small thing. Every time a minister stands up here, a liturgist, and you begin to hear words from Scripture calling you to worship, and then there's a line, and you see it maybe on the screen or on the piece of paper that says, people, and then there's your lines right there, and every time you begin to open your mouth to respond, you are entering into something that has broad implications for your entire life. It will redirect everything if you, if you set your life on that path. Will you pray with me? God of grace, Um, Give us eyes to see and ears to hear how you work in our lives and how good you are to us. Coming out to get us to entice us with the sweetness of your love. Would you do that in a way that we need to, that we need to hear it in in ways that, that are warranted and make sense for us. And even in this time,